Jesus is resurrected. He's ascended. He already commissioned His apostles to be discipling others, baptizing them in His name. So this is what the disciples had been doing. The numbers of Christians were growing like crazy. 3,000 alone on Pentecost Sunday and still more ever so often, the author of Luke tells us as he goes through the book of Acts. It's no small thing. It's getting attention, even more attention than Christ brought, which isn't irreverent to say because Christ predicted it would. Christ said, truly, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. The disciples are doing greater things, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. It's God's kingdom. It's the very power, spirit, and presence of Christ unleashed on the world. But the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. Great motivation. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. People are getting healed. People are knowing their sins and getting forgiven. And the leaders of God's people are jealous. They shut the voices up in prison. But if you know Acts 5, you know the Lord Himself sets them free, tells them to go to the temple, the very place where Paul is at in our text today. God tells the disciples to go to the temple and declare the gospel. And eventually they're found. The leaders of the Jewish religion say, we told you not to do this. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. What to do? These pesky Christians, you persecute them, they multiply. You tell them to shut up, they say it louder. You threaten them with power, they claim to know the sovereign of the universe. What to do? But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And then he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. A few verses later in Acts 5. In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing or fighting God. Let's pray. Father, I'll just speak for myself that I put too little of faith and trust in you and your sovereignty and your power. All you require is the faith of a mustard seed. Apparently I bring the faith of atoms to you sometimes. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to not only trust in you and your power and your sovereignty, but to then act on our beliefs, as James would challenge us. 
Help us to receive with meekness the implanted word today. Change our hearts and minds. Change the way we think. Help us to be transformed in the renewing of our minds. It is not my voice in preparation that can bring this about, but your spirit. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak today and give us ears that hear and a heart that is soft towards you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Where we are at in Acts 22 is many years later, but it's deja vu. Gamaliel's student, the Apostle Paul, is now a follower of Jesus, and it is Paul in the hot seat. In Acts 5, right before Gamaliel offered his advice, we actually read in Acts 5.33 that when they, the council members, heard the apostles basically sharing the gospel, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is exactly what Paul is facing, a crowd of angry Jewish men who were going to kill him until Rome intervened, the only time they've done anything nice in the story so far. You're going to find that they don't stay nice. Anyways, last week we began to unpack Paul's statements to these men, and we pick it up today in Acts 22, 17. But first of all, we should know that Paul had thus far told them how much he had in common with them having been a zealous, pharisaical, law-loving, temple-worshipping persecutor of Christians. That was his specific title. No, it wasn't. A student to this revered Rabbi Gamaliel. But then Christ met him and asked, Why do you persecute me? So Paul is saved, and we, we pick it up in Paul's testimony in verse 17. He says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple... I fell into a trance and saw him. Some translations let you know that this is the Lord, but the word him is there because as a good Jew, Paul likely wouldn't want to say the name of Yahweh in front of them. I I want you to hear uh, this in the ears of of the law-loving Jewish crowd. See, Paul is saying, I was in the holy nation, Israel. In the holy city, Jerusalem, at the holy place, the temple, seeing Him, God, Yahweh, it's all good. It's as it should be for God to be in charge. I'm in the right place at the right time before the right God, and I saw Him. I saw Him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. How do you think Paul liked that? This is Paul we're talking about. The the forceful, charismatic, bulldozing leader. He didn't know what bulldozers were at the time. But the ruthless Pharisee who got things done. Who did more than the high priest ever did trying to eradicate these Christians. You think I can't testify to these people, Jesus? And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. In other words, Paul is saying, Lord, I have the track record of a ruthless enemy of yours. Won't that be compelling? No doubt Paul likely mentions this line as he says to the same sorts of enemies of Christ who he's talking to. 
hoping that maybe Christ was maybe wrong about this, right? Like, don't we often have hopes like this? Oh, that family member of mine, if I could just get this book from this great Christian author who thinks exactly like they, if they could just read it, right? Or if that public figure who's so adamantly against all things Christian, just give me a room and, and talk with him. I can change his mind. Too often our hopes exceed reality. See, sometimes if even a man were to rise from the dead and go and plead with their loved ones who are as sinful as they are, sometimes that's not even going to work. That's what Jesus says in Luke 16.31. We all have those thoughts. That was Paul's thoughts. But bracketed between Paul's understandably logic reasoning, namely, if the persecutors of Christ heard that their champion persecutor repented and was converted, maybe they would convert too. On either side of this, this reasoning are, is the Lord's foreknowledge of this. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem, Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And then verse 21, Andy said to me, Go, or I will send you far away to the Gentiles says God in the temple and the holy city of Jerusalem and the holy land of Israel to His holy people. Go to the Gentiles. There are two undeniable truths for the Jew from an outside observation. The first observation is that the Jews were intensely nationalistic. Easy to be when Rome has stripped you bare. And for the Jews, it was about them, about their Messiah, about their nation, and when they're going to rise again, about their salvation, about their deliverance, and their second exodus, their second return from exile. It's about them. Second undeniable truth about the Jew. Their scriptures and promises were always about the world. More than, more than them. All the way back to the first calling upon Abraham and all the peoples on earth, some say nations, some say families on earth, will be blessed through you. All the peoples on earth, not just the Jews, not just Abraham and his bloodline descendants, all the peoples on earth. Isaiah prophesying from the exile speaks of the Messiah, so the disciple Matthew points out for us, in Matthew 12:21 Isaiah writes and in his name the gentiles will hope in his name the gentiles will hope i will send you far away to the gentiles says god to paul peace peace to the far and to the near says the lord in isaiah 57:19 for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, says the prophet Habakkuk. Their scriptures and promises were always about the world more than themselves, but they were also intensely nationalistic. Gentiles, the world, other people than themselves, it offends them. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they, the crowd listening to Paul, listen to them. That's, that was the last straw. <laughs> then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. We see that their riot spirit is back in full swing. See, Paul's thoughts and sentiments, and I want to say, namely, God's thoughts and sentiments, 
are not shared by people professing to be His. Verse 23, And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Now a few things. First, we might be reminded that just as Paul talked about his persecuting days, he held the coats of those who murdered Stephen. And here we are again, people are throwing off their cloaks, but this time it's not to lay at the feet of Saul, but to persecute Saul himself. You know, I notice, I know that in, in some churches with real pastors who, who preach in suits, sometimes they take off their overcoat before they preach because they're about to get real strenuous activity. That's kind of the idea here. They're going to like, well, you know, it's going to take a while to beat Paul up, so let's get ready. However, in ancient practice, you know, if a person is about to be executed, they were the ones to strip. So some wonder if this is an irony here, both with this and the episode with Stephen, that though they're removing their cloaks, likely for physical reasons, but they were also stripping ironically because in God's court, they were the ones being judged. It's why during Stephen's stoning, people remove their cloaks and begin to stone him, but Jesus, the righteous judge, is standing at the right hand of God to receive Stephen. And then they're flinging dust in the air. You know, Jews were told when visiting Gentiles, they should wipe the dust off their feet. Jesus scandalously told this to his own disciples to do that to, to any person who may not receive their teaching, Jew or Gentile. And so likewise, symbolically for this Jewish crowd, angry at Paul, they are in essence saying, the very dirt is polluted with your blasphemy that you just spoke over it. So they're flinging dust into the air. They're ready to run him down and kill him again. A riot. See, Paul was where he should be back when he was first called. If you were here for my teachings through chapters 19 and 20, he was called to Jerusalem. He's at the temple and praying to God when God told him to go to the Gentiles. Now, now Paul is back at that temple in Jerusalem, and now he's trying to do what he told God he was certain would work. If they hear my testimony, the Christian killer, the, the zealous Pharisee persecutor, surely they would convert too, but, but Paul's finding that it's not working. It's not that Paul was disobedient. He did leave Jerusalem the first time when God told him to, but we also know, thanks to Acts 19, 20, and 21, that God had called him here for this time in Jerusalem to suffer. And here it is. Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. If you don't believe in good and evil, this should convince you. Because this is just bizarre to me. How is it so offensive that the creator of the universe has come to earth, died for our sins in our place, rose again, extends forgiveness righteousness, redemption, salvation, life everlasting to all, and the answer to this is kill him. Because we disagree. It's not for everyone. It's only for us. Salvation is available and there is outrage. Opposition is demonic. That's the only way this can be characterized or explained for me, is that it has to be demonic. Jesus says to a similar audience, Jewish opponents to his message, he says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I am not here of my own accord, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? Then listen to this. You you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. If salvation offends someone, if God's kindness for the world offends someone, it is demonic. You are of your father the devil. As the father of lives, lies, perhaps the most deceived is himself the devil. And his servants are likewise deceived, deceived that they're doing, that they're even doing his bidding. They don't realize they're doing it. Deceived like Paul, that they think it's righteous to murder those who are fulfilling God's salvation for the world. That's how Paul was before he was saved. And whenever you start saying, God wants me to kill this person, Wrong phone call. <laughs> Change. Better try again. And even the likes of Paul, before his conversion and the likes of these men of Israel, could likely state or bring up, like I just read in my personal Bible reading last week, you know, when Moses was so offended at the blasphemy that Aaron and the men down there were doing with the golden calf, what did they do? They strapped on swords and slaughtered men. But I should note that the offense wasn't loving kindness to the foreigner, which is prescribed in the law. It was worship of a golden calf, worship of a God of their own making. The God that leads the Jews to a being offended by grace is no God like Yahweh. It's the devil, says Christ. When this riot first started, Rome, again, had uncharacteristically been the protagonist for a mere 15 minutes of fame. They They came to end the scuffle. They came and they carted Paul off. And they're still here. It's likely that Paul is having his say from the steps of the fortress of Antonia, which is the barracks where the Roman soldiers would stay near the temple. And so the crowd starts acting up again. The Roman tribune, his name is Lysias, we're told over in Acts 23-26. He takes Paul again. And uh, we read, or excuse me, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Oh great, Paul is saved from the right. He's saved. Like, then we read that the tribune was saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. It's dumb soldier logic. Never changes. Why are they shouting? I don't understand. Flog them, boys. Then we'll get to the bottom of this, if you can talk. Rome's interest was not in the safety of Paul but ending the unrest at the temple. And if Paul was a target of controversy, the center of such a riot, then he should be punished, was the thinking. Let's remove the figure, the controversial figure, from the riot, then let's neutralize him so he can't be at the center of such a riot again. So they were all Jews, though, in Rome's eyes. Expendable. If you were here a few weeks ago, I went into great detail to describe flogging. It's what Jesus endured before his crucifixion. It entailed whips, 
cracked bone and glass at the end of it, beating the flesh like a butcher tenderizes meat, and then sinking the hooks down into the back of the flesh, ripping it off. People often died from blood loss, from flogging. Paul had been beaten. He had been stoned. He was even thought dead on one of his missionary journeys. Some say he was dead. But flogging at the hands of trained torturers was not experience that he had yet faced. Verse 25, when they had stretched, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion, so this isn't Lysias, the tribune. Lysias had ordered a centurion to do this. Paul says to him who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? This is an easy Jeopardy question. Now, a lot of questions arise about this. Why did Paul wait until he was getting tied up? Uh, Was he hesitating about enduring this for the Lord and then giving up here? Were things moving so fast that he didn't have a few seconds to blurt out his citizenship? The thing about Roman citizenship meant that citizens needed to be tried before condemned, needed to be convicted before flogged. Uh, Citizens had rights. And so some have said, well, how could anyone be trusted? Didn't everybody just say, I'm a Roman citizen? Did people carry papers on their person? Now, my studies said that Roman law required that anyone who claimed citizenship would be treated as such even before confirmation was available. But they would seek confirmation, probably pretty fast, likely by witnesses. Acts 23.16 tells us that Paul at least has a nephew right in Jerusalem, so they could go find him and say, do you know, is he a Roman citizenship? They would need a few witnesses. Now, again, Paul knew coming to Jerusalem would entail suffering. Christ calls people to suffer, to pick up their cross, to follow him daily. Ananias had heard from the mouth of God about Paul, he must suffer for my name. And the people around Paul knew he was on a beeline to Jerusalem back from his third missionary journey that he would suffer. But this doesn't mean God wants us to seek out suffering. (laughs) This doesn't mean that we lay down at the slightest inkling of suffering. Go ahead. Paul's not compromising his faith, nor is he showing cowardice here. He's a citizen of Rome. Paul has a right to exercise all the powers given to him. It's not ungodly to be a citizen. It's not against Christ, nor is it unbecoming of a Christian to to seek refuge from suffering offered freely in the rights granted from citizenship. We see in Paul that it's going to be for purposes of glorifying God among more audiences. In fact, for the remainder of our preaching time in Acts, it might get a little repetitive because Paul is just giving speeches among other audiences. But Paul picks an opportune time to reveal his citizenship. It says, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, take care what you do, for this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Lysias' full name is Claudius Lysias. And the emperor at the time was Claudius. And it's thought that many paid either him or his associates bribes to be accepted into citizenship. 
And citizens might then take the name of the emperor or whoever they're paying money to. Paul said, but I am a citizenship by birth. How does a Jew become a Roman citizen? Many times, citizenship would be granted or gifted in return for services to the empire. This could be anything from serving in the army, providing for some Roman government business, perhaps even tent making for the army if Paul's vocational trade, like many Jews, was one passed down through generations. Could be that one of his forefathers or even his father made some tents for the army and said, okay, here's your citizenship. Even so, inherited citizenship was perceived to be slightly more honorable than bought citizenship, kind of like the aristocracy clashes between rich inherited money or new money. So those who were about to examine him, you know, with flogging, withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. By the law, the tribune's already broken it here, being bound up with intention to flog. Paul could have, if he wanted to, made a complaint about that. Verse 30, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. Now the idea is he was just released from prison. He had already been unbound, likely from the flogging the day before. And he commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So now, which seems more logical, instead of flogging Paul as to find out why the riotous Jews are so upset with him, I got an idea, let's take him to the Jewish council, since that's where the contention is. Apparently logic only works whenever you're dealing with Roman citizens. As we come to the end of our text, I have to say I wrote four or five drafts for this message. (laughs) And everything about it was, I don't know, for whatever reason, hard for me. Perhaps what's hard about unpacking it is bringing out the so what application. Most of my preaching classes, and I even hear other pastors will say it right in their sermons, there's this understandable so what to ask about the text. Like, why did I just unpack all this? What does all this information, and I hope the Holy Spirit uses in illuminating this text for us, what are his purposes in bringing them to light for us today? And here's what I see. Um, You can be right where God wants you, witnessing about God in your words and actions, and be in danger. And it be uncomfortable, scary, or suffering. I hope none of you have bought into what is called the prosperity gospel, that if you serve God, he will bless you with health and money. Indeed, I hope you haven't bought into the idea that God even necessarily wants you to be healthy or rich all the time. God called Paul, and Paul sometimes had to make tents to supply for his means as as he was going from place to place testifying about who he was. And he called Paul to not only share the gospel, but to suffer for the sake of his name. God even called Paul to have what Paul called a thorn in his flesh. We read in 2 Corinthians 12, So to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Paul goes on to say, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, My power, for my power is made perfect in weakness, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
I'm sure there are whole books and classes devoted to what is this thorn. Perhaps it's vague for a purpose. Was it a besetting sin? Was it an illness? Was it an injury? All we do know is that whatever the weakness is, God refused to remove it. Because my grace, says God, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God calls us to even the not-so-comfortable places. I mean, having described for you what flogging is, how did Paul feel coming from a riotous, angry crowd to a Roman about to flog him? All of this coupled with the assurance from his past few months of knowing, I'm right where God wants me. God wanted me in Jerusalem. God knew I would suffer. You can be right where God wants you, witnessing about God in your words and actions and be in danger, and it be uncomfortable, scary, and suffering. But if you are where you are, the hope that Paul had to carry on, the energy, the power, the spirit, the will to carry on was this, perhaps what he learned from his rabbi, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. God wins in the end. God is going to have His way. Here's what I do love, despite all that Paul is is undergoing. He's going to be witnessing in front of big names of his time. The Gospel will be shared still. Just how the first disciples were whipped, beaten, incarcerated, only to be freed supernaturally and directed again to the temple, so Paul will speak his testimony again and again before kings and rulers. Suffering will happen, yes, but the seeds of the gospel will still be sown in his suffering. I don't know about you, but I know about my thorns in the flesh. Do you have thorns in the flesh? Something you wish God would just remove? Don't say your spouse. (laughs) What if right where you're at, right now, as uncomfortable as it is to hear or muse upon, is right where God wants you to be? What if God is teaching, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness? And it's all for this. We begin to see that in our weaknesses, the power of Christ resting upon us. Let's pray. Father, I see it in my sons all the time, some rule or policy or correction of discipline made, and it's resented. There is an understandable lack of control they feel, and it causes them to be angry to know that we're in control, but we're not doing things the way that they want it to be done. You handle us likewise. It's it's a small thing for us to read the words that Paul was almost flogged or he was the center of an angry riot. But to even imagine it for a second, Paul knowing what flogging is, knowing above all things though that you called him to these moments. Thank you for the faith and endurance that he shows, that he doesn't doubt your love for him. He doesn't doubt your sovereignty and the fact that you will win in the end. And if he did doubt your purposes, 
The way that Luke writes, it seems like he didn't feel the need to voice them. Help us to imitate Paul insofar as he imitates Christ. Help us to trust you when there are thorns in our flesh. Help us to continue to trust you when perhaps in our situation we feel like something is off, something is not as it should be, but help us to ponder the reality, what if everything is as it should be, and Christ is trying to teach me something. Give us discernment and continued trust and faith in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. Mm-hmm.